All right, I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning. And we are continuing our study in the book of Acts. And if you'll do me a quick favor, uh, as we get started, if you do not have a study guide in your hand this morning, if you'll throw up a quick hand and just leave it up for a moment, and we'll have some volunteers get the extras to the folks that are scattered abroad. So keep your hands up for just a moment. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. Let's pray together as we get started gathering around God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to You today in the name of Jesus. And we confess a great need to You, Lord. God, we are gathered up as a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace Community Church, Lord. Church that You have called out of darkness, gathered up in this city. And Lord, we are called by Your name. And we gather together in this place today as a family around Your Word. And we desire to meet with You today, Lord. And we ask You to draw near to us, God. Every single one of us all across this room, Lord, we have a tremendous need to see You. Not as we conceive of You, but as You truly are, Lord. And that's exactly what we ask for today, that You would give us a glimpse of Yourself and that You would show us Your glory today, God. Lord, we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would dispense knowledge of Jesus Christ all across this room. That you would increase our knowledge of Christ, increase our love for Christ, increase our reverence and our submission to Christ. And Lord, we confess to you that we labor in vain, God, unless you build this house. And so we ask you to come today. Lord, encourage us, God, and make the preaching of your word effective. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, this morning we're going we're gonna to continue to unpack the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And I'll remind you very quickly that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church of Jesus Christ and Peter has begun to preach. And we're about to parachute down right in the middle of his sermon. And we're going to pick it up this morning, beginning in verse 22. I'll ask you to read that with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth... A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers. I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. 
and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. May God bless the teaching of his word today. This is God's word for Grace Community Church. I'm going to ask a quick favor of somebody in the front. If you'll close this door so we don't get the uh, kids noise from the other side. If you can do that for me really quick. Thank you very much. All right. So let's think about this passage of scripture that we just read. And what we have here, Grace Community Church, is this is an inspired record of spirit-filled preaching. Okay, you can, you can think about it like that. That um, there's a lot of opinions about what spirit-filled preaching looks like, but this is actually an inspired record of what spirit-filled preaching is. And really, we can learn a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in observing the first fruit of Pentecost. Okay, let me tell you what I'm... What I'm thinking when I use that phrase, the spirit of God is poured out in Acts chapter two. And think about this. The very first thing that happens, OK, is the apostle Peter begins to preach Jesus Christ exalted. OK, the very first move of a man who is filled with the spirit of God is to preach Jesus. And I'll say this for everybody um, in the room, that version of charismatic, if that's what you mean by charismatic, we're all in. If that's what you mean by being charismatic, we need more of that and not less of that. That the very first move of the Spirit of God filling the people of God is to proclaim Jesus Christ. So I want us to think about this sermon um, for just a moment. That, that Peter preaches this sermon in our, in our text beginning to end. His content is Jesus. Okay, He starts with Jesus. He continues with Jesus. And he ends with Jesus. Okay, Spirit-filled preaching starts with Jesus. Continues with Jesus. And ends with Jesus. Alright? So I want you to think about this. Spirit of God given in Acts chapter 2, Peter is baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I want you to look at his boldness. Okay, This is a man who denied Jesus Christ just not even two months before this event. And then notice this remarkable change in boldness. The Spirit of God has baptized this man. He's been immersed in the third person of the Trinity. And look at his first words. He looks out on a crowd. And he says, he gives them a command. He says, men of Israel. And then he says, hear these words. Hear these words. The Spirit of God had empowered Peter to give an authoritative witness to Jesus Christ. And so let's just think some hot thoughts as we make our way into this passage. What is spirit-filled preaching? Okay. Well, spirit-filled preaching is not giving somebody just a little piece of advice about Jesus. 
Okay? Spirit of God comes on a man and a man, and a man stares at a crowd of people and he says, hear this. I have an authoritative message. It's not my message. This is a message from heaven. And so he commands his audience to hear him. Okay? Not giving advice. He's giving an authoritative word about Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we can observe just from the very beginning, when we think about biblical evangelism and faithful preaching of God's word, just, just a high observation, okay, is that Peter did not preach a domesticated Jesus that you can add on as an accessory to your life. Just like you're getting dressed and, and you look pretty good and you slap on some accessories to, to look really good. That's, this is, he, he did not preach a version of Jesus that was like that. Add this little piece of Jesus on to your life. I got a good little piece of advice that would really help you. He did the exact opposite of that. Okay? He's not preaching a domesticated Christ. And he's not giving advice. He's preaching an authoritative message. And he's calling people to submit to a king. Okay? He's not just giving people something to think about. He is commanding them and charging them to hear and respond to God's king. This is very important for us to learn about faithful evangelism and spirit-filled preaching and rightly handling the gospel, we don't have advice to give this world. We have a message from heaven and we have a stewardship to make this message known to the ends of the earth. This is an authoritative word about what God has done in Jesus Christ. All right. So we have authoritative exaltation of Jesus. Let's keep thinking high up. I want you to also notice. That when the Spirit of God fell on Peter and he began to preach, okay, I want you to notice that in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter is not preaching to felt needs, okay? Peter is not preaching to felt needs. I want to explain that to you. Even though this is popular dogma in America of how preaching is to be done, you preach to felt needs in your audience. You preach to perceived needs in your audience. And the presupposition is that everybody um, that's hearing you has needs. And you want to make a connection with your audience. Uh, things like, you know, you need purpose in your life. Okay? Or maybe you're having marital trouble and you need some help. Or maybe you're having financial trouble and you need some help, okay? And you're feeling these needs. You're aware of these needs. Maybe you got some life goals and you need some help. Well, the prevailing dogma of how preaching is to be done in America is that you identify those perceived needs, those felt needs, and then you pivot to Scripture and show people what Scripture says about how God can help you fulfill those needs. Okay. And I don't want to stay on this too long. But, I, but other than this. I want to point it out. That Peter did not do that. Okay. He doesn't identify any felt needs in his audience. Instead. I want you to notice that in Acts chapter 2. When the spirit of God rushes upon this man. He preaches to unfelt Needs. He preaches to an unfelt need on the day of Pentecost. And here's what I mean by that. He had a crowd around him that was gathered up by signs and wonders. And not one person in this crowd, not one, was aware that they had an eternal need that only Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, could meet. Not one of them. Okay. And so he preaches in such a way to address an unfelt need, an unfelt need. And we can learn something about that as disciples of Jesus, as we think about spirit filled preaching and faithful evangelism, 
that anybody anywhere on planet Earth, okay, we know this about them. Before we know human beings' names, before we know their background, before we even know the language that they speak, we know as Christians that every human being on planet Earth has an eternal need to be saved from God's wrath through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether they feel it or not, this is their ultimate need. This is their eternal need. And so faithful evangelism seeks to preach to that need, whether they feel it or not. This is Peter's strategy in Acts chapter 2. And additionally, we can learn spirit-filled preaching and, and faithful evangelism. We know that, that lost people in unregenerate humanity, they won't feel their need unless the Spirit of God visits the preaching of Jesus Christ. They will remain ignorant of this need. They will not feel this need unless the Spirit of God awakens them. And this is why we pray to the God who created all things that people would get saved. That God would visit the proclamation of His Word with power. And that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter is preaching to this need, this unfelt need. And then all of a sudden, at the end of this sermon, we find out that this group of gathered Jews, they felt like they got stabbed in the heart by the Word of God. This is the exact phrase that's used in verse 27. That the people who heard this sermon were cut to the heart. The Spirit of God visited the preaching of the gospel and He was doing something on the inside of human beings as they heard these words. And I want to submit to you that this is a paradigm for us for faithful evangelism. That we speak to this unfelt need, this eternal need, that every human being needs Jesus Christ. And we trust the Spirit of God to awaken them as we share these words, to cut them to the heart, to make the preaching of the gospel effective. And so how I just want to encourage you with that, Grace Community Church. We don't need tricks. Okay? We don't need gimmicks. Okay? We don't need um, modern American psychology to make connections with people. We have the gospel. We have the power of God unto salvation. This is our weapon. And we intend to use it. And only this. Okay? We play to our strengths. God has given us something 10 million times more powerful than every nuclear bomb on planet earth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is able to raise sinners from the dead. And we're supposed to announce it. And we need the spirit of God's help to announce it rightly. So this is what we see Peter doing. In this sermon on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching Christ, he's exalting Christ, and his entire sermon is going to revolve around four truth claims that he makes about Jesus. And we're going to walk through these this morning. So start to finish, he preaches Jesus, but there's a logical progression in the things that he says about Jesus. So we're going to start with claim number one this morning. And claim number one is this. Peter looks out to the crowd and he proclaims that Jesus was endorsed by God. I don't want us to rush past this this morning. He was endorsed by God. Look at verse 23. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 says that Jesus was a man attested to you by God. And so notice where he starts. Okay. First, he starts with th these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Think about that. Humble carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus is his name. This is the one that we're talking about. A real human being. Lived in a real town. People really knew him. 
Okay? So he starts out with the humanity of Jesus Christ. And he says, this man, this real man, Jesus of Nazareth, was attested to you by God. And he refers to the miracles that God did through Jesus, a real member of the human race. Now, miracles are when God shows his extraordinary power over his creation. Okay? Miracles are not something that happens every day, like eating breakfast. Like, yeah, I ate breakfast and I saw a miracle. Okay? Or I drove to work and I saw a miracle. Well, which day are you talking? Oh, I saw a miracle every day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I see miracles every day. The Bible never speaks of miracles like that. They are extraordinary manifestations where the God who created all things reaches into his creation and flexes unrivaled power. Okay? And he uses three words. Luke uses three words. To describe these miracles. He calls them mighty works. Wonders. And signs. Now. I think that we are tempted to run past. This truth claim about Jesus. And I think that we tend to be. Off balanced in, in how the New Testament proclaims. Jesus Christ. And here's just one of the ways. Um, that I'm thinking about that. That. You know, in a lot of ways, if you give us a gospel to write and you say, hey, what do you think is important? We don't spend a lot of time typically between um, the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. OK, and we can tend to flatten out the work of Christ in those categories. He came, he died, he was raised. But the gospel writers, four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they devote uh, a lot of time and careful attention to chronicling over 40 miracles in the life of Jesus. Okay? Very careful attention is given um, to recording these miracles. These are not all the miracles that Jesus did. At the end of John's Gospel, we're told that. Okay? That if books contained all that Jesus did, even the world couldn't contain the books. But these are recorded so that we could see something about Jesus Christ and believe in him. So we have things all through the Gospels of miracles. Things like Jesus healing lepers or, or blind men coming to Jesus and Jesus healing their eyes and all of a sudden they can see. Or deaf men coming to Jesus and, and Jesus touching their ears and all of a sudden um, they can hear. We see things in the Gospels like Jesus of Nazareth, listen close, walking, taking a stroll across the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water. We see glimpses of Jesus in the Gospels standing up in a boat and looking at a mega thunderstorm and rebuking it with a word from his mouth and the thunderstorm comes to a great calm. Miracles. Over and over and over again. We see Jesus gather up these massive crowds in the Galilean wilderness. And he takes um, like five loaves of bread and three fish. And he explodes them and, and feeds like 5,000 people and then 3,000 people. Miracles. And we even see Jesus... Uh, 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 raise the dead. Uh, he, he, he looks at Lazarus and he, and he calls him out of the tomb. Extraordinary manifestations of the creator's power over his creation. Okay? And there's something that we can learn from these three words. They're mighty works. They're powers. And he calls them wonders because that's the effect that they produce and all who see them. Okay? And it's like a reflex and a response that the people that are around Jesus when he does these miracles is they the fear of God falls upon them. Amazement from heaven falls upon them. And all of a sudden they realize that they're in the presence of God. That God has just messed with their reality. And they're seeing some things that they have no grid to explain other than God just did that. They're wonders. Okay? They're wonders. They produce amazement in human hearts. 
But notice that he also calls them signs. And this is really important. Okay? They're also signs. They're powers. They produce wonder and amazement. But they're signs because they point beyond themselves. They point beyond themselves and they illustrate spiritual truths about Jesus Christ. And so when we see Jesus and when we see him healing blind eyes and healing deaf ears, we are assured that Jesus can do the harder work, the more glorious work of healing spiritual blindness and healing spiritual deafness. They're signs. Okay. They communicate something to us about the Messiah. And so Jesus doesn't do pointless miracles. He doesn't walk into Nazareth and levitate off the ground and say, everybody line up and bow down before me. No, he chooses to do these miracles that show something about the work of salvation that he has come to accomplish. When Jesus raises the dead, what does that show us other than Jesus can do the harder work, the more glorious work of raising sinners from the dead, of granting the new birth? And, and raising every human being up on the last day. They're signs. These miracles are signs that point to the work of Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that Jesus did miracles, it wasn't even up for debate in the first century. And I want you to think about that this morning. Okay? The arguments that we think are so watertight in our skeptical society, nobody even made them in the first century. So I want you to think about this. Okay, Jesus' miracles were known so far and so wide, they were so publicly attested that not even his enemies, listen, not even his enemies denied his miracles. Listen to John chapter 11, verse 47. It says this. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Did you catch that? Even his enemies are saying this man does Many signs. And if we let this continue, everybody's about to follow him. Now, that's an amazing claim. Okay. So if there's any skeptics in the room, I think that this is this is a, a great challenge for, for, for someone that's skeptical about Jesus Christ. A great challenge to leap over. And here's what I mean by this, that the skeptics in our day, the watertight argument is when Christians proclaim the word of God that Jesus did miracles, the skeptics say, no, he didn't. That's their argument. No, he didn't. He did not do them. And is it not interesting that not one source, not one source from the first century in the time of Jesus, in the location of Jesus, not one says, no, he didn't. This is how silly that argument would have been in the first century. There are other arguments lost at Jesus Christ. That's not one. So I thought about an analogy of illegitimate positions, you know, about a variety of things in our day. And this is not a perfect analogy, but I want you to understand this. Okay. There are a lot of people and probably rightly so that do not like the president of the United States of America, Donald Trump. Okay. And there are a lot of people that, that claim and hold a position that Donald Trump is not qualified to be president of the United States of America or the position that Donald Trump should be impeached from being the president of the United States of America, or they hold the position that Donald Trump is a terrible president of the United States of America. But the, the, the position that holds no weight, it's an impossible position, is this. He is not the president of the United States of America. He is. Okay? He might be a bad one. He might be an unqualified one. He might not need to be the president of the United States of America, but he is. But he is. So there's certain arguments that you can make today that do not hold water. They're silly. Nobody makes them. 
And the argument in the first century regarding the miracles of Jesus, the one that nobody even fathomed of opening their mouth and claiming was that Jesus of Nazareth did not do miracles. No evidence, no source claims that. Even his enemies proclaim that he did miracles. And that doesn't mean that they received him. Okay, because they twisted it in this way. They said, yeah, Jesus does miracles, but he does them by the power of Beelzebub. He's doing miracles all right. There's supernatural stuff happening in Jesus of Nazareth's life, but he's doing it by the power of Satan. Is that not interesting? That nobody took the bulletproof position that Jesus just didn't do miracles. Nobody even dreamed of saying that. And Peter is explicit and he's making a claim. Um, you know, you know these things. God attested to these things. Jesus' miracles were known far and wide. And Peter tells us explicitly that God is the one acting through Jesus producing these miracles. This same argument shows up later as the apostle preaches the gospel again in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. He makes the same claim. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for, the, for God was with him. It's the important claim for the apostles in the early church was that, that God confirmed Jesus with miracles. Right? Peter moves on. To his next claim about Jesus. And this is a shocking transition. Because I want you to catch the flow. First point he makes. Is that God attested Jesus. With miracles. And then he immediately jumps to the second claim. That God killed him. God attested to uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And then God killed Jesus of Nazareth. We see that in verse 23. Peter argues that the same God that worked miracles through Jesus is ultimately the one responsible for the death of Jesus. I want you to think through this with me. This is a shocking transition. It's a jolt to us and it would have been a jolt to them. But I want you to notice what Peter does in one verse of Scripture. In one verse of Scripture, he zones in on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he tells us that at the cross, there's a divine side, okay? And at the cross, there's a human side. And when we talk about that, the divine side and the human side, we're approaching one of the greatest mysteries in the Word of God. And that mystery is this. God's predestination on the left hand and human responsibility on the right hand. Which of those two things does the Bible teach? And the answer, according to Peter and all of Scripture, is both. Okay? Both. Both are true. God predestines and human beings are responsible. Now, many of us, every single one of us, if we're honest, we have trouble squaring that. Okay? How can both of those things be true? They seem to contradict each other. Okay? And I'll remind every one of us that there are doctrines in the Word of God, many different doctrines in the Word of God, that they terminate in mystery. Okay? That means you can't fit all this stuff in your brain and understand it like a computer. Just think about this. Think about our claim that God is a triunity. He's the triune God. We believe that because Scripture affirms that there is one God. And then the same Bible affirms that there are three persons. So we don't believe um, that there's three gods. We believe that there's one God in three persons. And we worship the triune God. Okay? They're, mis they're mysterious. That There's clear things about them, but they terminate in mystery. And that means that we have to accept... That we will never understand in this world. We will never understand everything as fully as we would like to. Okay. Two reasons why. One, you're sinful. I'm sinful. We have sinful minds. 
and sinful hearts that are corrupted by sin. And, and, and even in a regenerate state, sin affects the way that we think. It pollutes the way that we think about God's truth. And then the second reason is for us to remember that not only are we sinful, we're finite. We are finite. You cannot, I cannot, we cannot fit the infinite glory of God in finite human brains. We can't. Okay, They're, they terminate in mystery. And so we have to be very, very careful that when the Bible affirms two things that we don't understand all the ins and outs of the way they go together, we affirm both because the word of God affirms both. Okay, I want you to think about how dangerous heresy you can get in if you deny one of those aspects of the Trinity. Okay. And in the same way, in a similar way, you can get into massive amounts of false doctrine by denying God's predestination or human responsibility. Bible affirms both. Therefore, we affirm both. And just to drive this in even further, I mean, just notice Peter. He has no problem talking about these things side by side in the same verse. God planned it and human beings killed him. Okay? In the same verse of Scripture. And so, on the one hand, Jesus Christ was brutally murdered by lawless men. That's the human side. And then, on the other hand, this death was the predetermined plan of God. The predetermined plan of God. This same truth shows up again. In the book of Acts chapter 4. Listen to verse 27. This is helpful. He says. For truly in this city. There were gathered together. Against your holy servant Jesus. Whom you anointed. Both Herod. And Pontius Pilate. Along with the Gentiles. And the peoples of Israel. To do. Whatever your hand. And your plan. Had predestined to take place. The Bible really teaches that. That when Jesus was murdered. When Jesus' enemies conspired against him. They only did what God had already planned. And so Peter holds both of these things out. Affirms that God predestined these things. But in no way does God's predestination eliminate human sin. Humans are still responsible. That's the position. And he's calling them to see this about the death of Jesus. And he holds them both forward, but he does emphasize one more than the other. Okay? And we should too. That both of these things are true, but if we crown one as king, we crown the sovereignty of God, the predetermined plan of God as king. And we emphasize God's sovereignty in Jesus' death and over all things, but we emphasize it in such a way that does not diminish human sin and human responsibility. So think about this. Why does he emphasize the divine side of the crucifixion? And one answer to that question is he emphasizes the divine side because without the divine side, we have no gospel. There is no gospel apart from the divine side of the crucifixion of Christ. Here's what I mean. Nobody in all of history is saved by a murder. Okay. We are only saved by a substitutionary sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. That's the divine side. That God's doing something behind the scenes at Golgotha. You could not have seen Him with human eyes. But Jesus is pouring out blood on the mercy seat. There's a divine side to it. And He tells us that this is the predetermined plan of God. Isaiah 53 verse 10 has no problem claiming that God was the main actor, the, the ultimate decisive reason that Jesus was crucified. Listen to these words. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says this. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
I'll say that again. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Beyond the flogging, beyond the crucifixion, beyond the spear, God is killing His Son at the cross of Jesus Christ. The wrath of the Father is falling upon the Son. And yes, lawless men are murdering Him, but He is accomplishing the predetermined plan of salvation. God planned His death. But then he jumps right into his next claim. Not only did God plan his death, God planned a resurrection from the dead. Claim number three, Jesus was raised by God. Jesus was attested by God. Jesus was killed by God. And Jesus was raised by God. Now, that's probably not new information to anybody in the room. Maybe it is. But probably not that you know that the Bible teaches that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But I want we have an opportunity as we unpack this word together that we think God's thoughts after him. And there's a logic and a way that this argument unfolds that that paints a glorious picture of Jesus Christ. And so we get a chance to do that. So I want to ask you some questions. Okay, when Peter grounds that argument. That God has raised Jesus Christ. What does he root that argument in? Why has God raised Jesus Christ? And I want you to see in verse 24. That here's his ground. Okay. Because it was impossible that death could hold Jesus. And so we need to think about the resurrection in these terms. Jesus was raised. Because it was impossible for death to hold him. Now that's an amazing claim. We've come a long way from verse 22, the carpenter in Nazareth. Okay? Jesus is proclaim, uh, Peter is proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth, that lowly, humble servant of God, it's impossible for death to hold this man. Tremendous claim. Death is not powerful enough to hold Jesus. It's impossible. Now continue to think these thoughts. Okay. Well why Peter? Why is it impossible. That death could, could not hold down. Jesus of Nazareth. And I want you to notice his answer. His answer is this. Because God said so. Because God said so. In Psalm 16. Verses 8 through 11. God prophesied. That this would happen. God said so. 1,000 years before the resurrection of Christ. God prophesied the resurrection of Christ. And once that happened. Once that prophecy goes forth. Once the word of God is spoken. It's impossible for that word not to be fulfilled. It's impossible for death to hold Jesus. So I want you to see this. In, in verse 27. Peter, Peter alludes uh, to Psalm 16, okay? And everybody that's hearing him, the Jewish background, their, their uh, thoughts are, Psalm 16 is about David. What are you talking about? That's a thousand-year-old psalm about King David. What are you talking about? And he responds to this by saying basically this, yeah, David spoke that psalm, but that psalm is not about David. And what, what Peter does is he goes back into Psalm 16 and he pulls out an exegetical detail okay, to show that there is no way that this psalm could be talking about Peter. And I want you to notice what he says it is. He points out that it was prophesied in Psalm 16 that a man's body would not rot in the ground. Okay. That a man's body would not rot in the ground. That's what that phrase means when it says he will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. Corruption, rotting in the ground. Okay. So Peter picks up on this detail that Psalm 16 is not prophesying this general resurrection on the last day. God's not going to leave me in the grave. He's going to raise me up again. That's biblical. Okay. 
That is biblical, but that's not what Psalm 16 is talking about. Psalm 16 is prophesying that almost before a man's body gets cold, but definitely before a man's body starts rotting, God is going to raise the Messiah from the dead. The Holy One will not see corruption. And then he turns to the crowd after he points out this detail. And he says, see, there's no way that that psalm could have been about David. And then he, and then he points them to the tomb of David. And he, and he says, this, this tomb has been here. It's been here at this point for a thousand years. We know where David's tomb is. And the implication is his body's inside of that tomb and it's rotting. Okay, This is not about David. And then he turns the corner and he, and he basically says this. If you want to know who, uh, who Psalm 16 is speaking about, you go compare the tomb of David to the tomb of Jesus. And you tell me whose body was not left to, cor- to corruption in the ground. And so he's pivoting. He's pulling Old Testament prophecy to show the impossibility that Jesus would not be raised. It was impossible that he would not be raised. So what Peter does is he takes Psalm 16 and he tells us that in Psalm 16, David is speaking as a prophet and he's prophesying a thousand years into the future about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, he explicitly claims this. Verse 31, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Verse 30 tells us that David knew that God had given him an oath. Okay, that's a promise and a covenant. And what God told him, that oath, that promise, that covenant, is that David, there was going to be one of his offspring that would sit on his throne and listen to this. He would rule forever. Okay? About five different places in the Old Testament, that same paradigm shows up. That an offspring of David is coming who's going to sit on the throne. And here's the key word, forever. Okay, God promised David a forever king. A forever king. Listen to Psalm 89, verse 35. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. David knew that promise. He knew that God would fulfill that promise. And in Psalm 16, David is prophesying about the means of by which God will fulfill that promise. How in the world can a man reign forever? How is God going to give David a son that will reign forever? Psalm 16. He speaks forth a thousand years into the future. That God's going to raise the Messiah from the dead. Never to die again. And he will sit on the throne of David. So I want you to notice this. Notice the progression Of this argument. By connecting Jesus. To Old Testament prophecy. About the Messiah. About the coming Davidic king. He is not simply claiming. That Jesus of Nazareth. Lived and died again. I mean died and lived again. So I want you to think about that. The claim is not merely. That Jesus did miracles. And he was a holy man. And he died and God raised him back to life. Now, that's an amazing thing. Okay, the fact that Jesus lives never to die again is an amazing thing. But that is not his ultimate claim. Okay, that he died and now he's alive by connecting him to these streams of prophecy. He's moving into his final claim about Jesus. And this claim is that Jesus was enthroned by God. Jesus was enthroned by God. In verse 32, Peter tells us that he was a witness to the resurrection of Christ. 
And that means that he saw the man who died on the cross. He saw him walk around in this world after he was raised from the dead. He was a witness to the resurrected Lord. The Bible tells us that Jesus taught him, that, that they ate meals together. He saw Jesus after he was raised. But I want you to notice that in verse 33, he takes that claim further. Not only is Jesus still alive, having been raised from the dead, Peter's claim is that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. Okay? He has been exalted to the right hand of God. And the thing that I want you to notice, this shows up over and over again, is that the resurrection of Christ is not spoken about in isolation. Okay? Not spoke about in isolation in the sense that he died and now he lives again. In fact, the resurrection of Christ is a means to this ultimate thing about Jesus. And so I think we can learn something about this. Okay? Not only is he the resurrected living one, he is the exalted Lord of heaven and earth. It's not just that Jesus lives, it's that he reigns. Okay? He came out of the tomb. He rose from the dead. And yes, he walked around in, in this world for 40 days. But now and forever, this same Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. This is a reference to his enthronement. The resurrected Christ is the resurrected King. So the, the thing that we can learn from that is, is that it's somewhat inadequate. Okay? To talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and not pivot to what that resurrection accomplished. It accomplished an enthronement. Jesus really does sit on a throne right now. He Not only is he alive, he reigns over all that he has made. Not only is he the resurrected one, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This reference to the right hand of God. This is telling us that Jesus, the Christ that we follow, he has been given the place of universal supremacy. He sits at the right hand of God. There's nothing beyond him, nothing above him. He has been given universal supremacy. It reminds us that Jesus has been given the name that is above every name. Yes, he is alive, but more so he is Lord and every tongue will confess that this Jesus is Lord. So I want you to, to notice the progression of Peter exalting Jesus Christ. This is the same Jesus that Peter started with Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, a humble miracle worker from Nazareth. Slaughtered by God as the lamb, raised triumphantly from the dead. And then you have a man, a real man sitting at the right hand of God, given all authority in heaven and on earth. This is God's king. This is a real human being. He had a real zip code in this world at one time. He's from Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. And this real man, this real human being, superior to us in every way, had the crown of heaven has been placed upon this perfect human being's head. And the royal scepter of heaven has been given to Christ Jesus. And he sits forever enthroned as the king of heaven and earth. This is a man. This is a man just like us, except superior to us in every way and yet without sin. A perfectly holy man rules heaven and earth right now. This was true for Peter's audience. It's true for every person in this room. A real man named Jesus has ascended. A real man named Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And then I want you to see this beautiful picture. Ryan referenced this a little bit last week. About Christ. This man. This resurrected ascended 
God-man crowned as king. He is given so much authority in heaven and on earth. All authority in heaven and on earth. Sitting at the right hand of God. So much authority that this man exalted from Nazareth. He is given authority to dispense the Holy Spirit. A man is pouring out the third person of the Trinity. Think about that. A man exalted above us in every way is pouring out what these men saw on the day of Pentecost. Pouring out the Holy Spirit. And we still receive the Spirit the same way today from Jesus. This gift comes from Jesus. And then he, he confirms this claim. Again, he pivots to the Old Testament in verse 34. And he confirms the enthronement of Jesus Christ with another reference to Old Testament prophecy. And this time he references Psalm 110. And Peter heard Jesus teach on that psalm. Peter heard Jesus before his enemies quote that psalm and reference himself. And Peter heard Jesus handle that psalm in such a way that Peter knew that that psalm was about Jesus Christ. And he uses it in the same way. And his point is we're talking about a Messiah who has ascended to the right hand of God. And he said, David didn't do that. That psalm ain't about David. David's speaking that psalm, but David's speaking as a prophet in that psalm. David did not ascend to heaven. And then look at his final claim, but Jesus did. Jesus is the true and better David. Jesus is the promised son of David. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he did ascend to the right hand of God. And then look what he says as he concludes in verse 36. After he's moved through this progression, this logical progression of exaltation of Jesus Christ, he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, as we finish up today, I want you to think God's thoughts after him. I want you to unfold this in your mind in the way that the Holy Spirit has given this to us. Okay? He just charged his hearers with a murder. And he walked through several different progressions that they would understand who they rejected. And by rejecting him became complicit in his murder. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about even today and all throughout church history. The things that begin to stir within a human being. The thoughts and emotions that begin to stir within a human being. When they realize that Jesus is the one that they have personally sinned against. And here's what I mean. I mean when the spiritual light pierces through. I mean when uh, Acts chapter 2 verse 37 happens. When somebody gets stabbed in the heart with the word of God. And they realize maybe for the first time in their life. Oh man. I did not sin against a carpenter from Nazareth. Oh man. I did not sin against a, a miracle worker from Nazareth. Oh, woe is me. I did not sin against Jesus dying on the cross, meek and mild. Woe is me. I have sinned against the one whom God has made Lord and Christ. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His voice is like the sound of many waters. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Woe is me. You should begin to think about that. These thoughts began to rush upon this crowd. And they were stabbed in the heart by these words. This is the one that we have rejected. The next paragraph tells us that they're crying out to the apostles. What must we do? I don't want to stay in this place. And they realize they're on the wrong side of Jesus' authority. I want to ask you to turn with me really quick to Psalm 110. 
The song that Jesus, ref, uh, Peter referenced about Jesus. Talking about this place of universal authority at the right hand of God. And I want to give us a reminder from this psalm of what Jesus has promised to do. What kinds of things will this king do at the right hand of God? We need to rightly think about that this morning. I'll pick it up in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. Listen close. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And I say this often, but I'll say it again. This is not the history channel Jesus. This is the one sitting on the throne of heaven. That will scatter his enemies' bodies over the entire globe. He will stack up corpses in judgment and in punishment. This is how much authority this king has. And every single Christian must pass under this conviction. This is the one that I've sinned against. What must I do to be saved? And that's exactly what happened to this crowd. They realized that they were on the wrong side of the authority of Jesus Christ. And there's no more dangerous place to be in all of creation than drawn up in rebellion against the King of glory. The one whom God has made Lord and Christ. The one whom God has given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so I want, to, I want to say this to you. If you're an unbeliever, and we love for unbelievers to visit Grace Community Church. We love it. We want you this week. We want you next week. We want you back in this place. We want you to hear the Word of God. We want you to hear about Christ. And in respect and love, and I have both of these things for you, in respect and love, I want to tell you about a decision that you have to make about Jesus. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is God's Christ. Jesus is the Lord. And my reminder to you, we're not talking about just that Nazarene prophet. Okay, You can know for certain that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Every single human being will bow before this king and call him Lord. And that's my reminder to you today that you have a gracious choice. God is gracious to you. God loves you and he's given you a gracious opportunity that you can bow before this king now. You can bow in submission before this exalted one now. And you can call this king with all authority. You can call him your savior. The one who puts away your sins. The one who dies in your place. You can call him Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away your sins. And you have that gracious opportunity. And Peter gives that invitation to all who, who hear. To everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. And the only reminder to you is that if you refuse to do that, the Bible tells us that certainly you will do that. No one will evade Bowing before Jesus as their king. You can bow before him now and call him your king and your savior. Or the Bible tells that you, says that you will bow before him in, your, in eternity as the one who punishes you forever for your sins. The one who cast you into the lake of fire. There is no more dangerous place to be in all of the universe than in rebellion to God's Christ. To this Jesus of Nazareth who has been made Lord in every way. Exalted in every way. So my brothers and sisters, I just want to remind us that as we see this authoritative one that we have, we have bowed down before him. We call him our king and our God. We, our prayer is that he would reign over us. And I just want to remind us of that before we finish today. That when we remember that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, we're automatically reminded that every ounce of honor and every ounce of allegiance is due to him. 
Okay? There's nothing off limits. He reigns over us in every way, in every corner of life. He is King. He is Lord. And we pray that His will would be done in our life, even as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You today, and we ask You to visit the preaching of Your Word, God. Help us to respond rightly today to the Lordship of Christ. God, thank You for this glorious work that You have done and exalting Jesus and giving Him the name that is above every name. Help us to worship Him with our whole hearts, God, with our whole lives. Reign over us, King Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen.